Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Corey Shockey, Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is Can China Rise Peacefully? And it was recorded on August 18th, 2015. Um, so, so the answer is no. Right? That the short version of my talk is the answer is no. <laughs> I have, uh, as some of you know, I have just finished writing a book about the transition from British to American dominance in the international order because it is the only peaceful transition between strong powers in the history of the state system. And what got me started uh, thinking about that was all of the discussion about a rising China and what that means for the United States, whether it's possible that China could displace the United States as the setter of rules and enforcer of rules in the international order. Um, and uh, American strategy for at least the last three presidents has been premised on the belief that a rising China can be a responsible stakeholder, on our terms, a responsible stakeholder. That is somebody who, because they are beneficiaries of the rules of order that the United States has established, that they will uphold those rules of order as we have. And American strategy believes that that kind of China displacing us would, in fact, be fine for American interests. Um, my research on the transition from British to American dominance suggests that's not true. That, in fact, what a hegemon tends to do once it is in control of the international order is to remake it as a macrocosm of its domestic political structures. That's what the United States did, creating a consensual international order based on rules that weak states can have confidence strong states will honor. And I think that's what we should expect a risen China to do as well, to make the international order a reflection of hegemony with Chinese characteristics. First slide, please. Uh, because, in fact, this is what we're afraid of, right? That, uh, that, that a resin China will, in fact, uh, make us a, a, a regional sort of uh, pleader for their interest. Uh, second slide, please. Oh, I can do it from there, right? We are going to have a test of, there we go. Um, so in political science, we are having a big discussion about whether repressive societies can sustainably prosper. The, the term we use is authoritarian capitalism, right? Can there be free markets with closed political systems over long periods of time? And uh, one of the leading voices in this conversation, Azar Ghat, argues that, uh, that repressive societies actually have enormous capitalist advantages because they can align the political and economic priorities of the society. They can, uh, they can more efficiently 
program resources so they can make infrastructure a priority and run a train system where it makes sense to run a train system instead of the way we messy democracies argue about it and people sue their government uh, to protect their property and that kind of thing. And Azergat argues that we are are beholden to voting as the measure of democracy, but that in fact authoritarian societies don't necessarily have the weakness of not knowing what their public thinks. They just don't discern that by voting. So, so that maybe they can be more sustainable over time. Because right, it's a businessman's dream you to have authoritarian capitalism, which is what this uh, cartoon is getting at. On the other side of the argument is Frank Fukuyama, is Walter Russell Mead, is Neil Ferguson, and, and their argument is that the, the tumult and the creativity that are necessary to produce sustained prosperity, and especially to produce sustained prosperity in an economy that is increasingly based on intellectual content rather than simple manufacturing, that only free societies can, can sustain that over time. Um, and, but what makes the argument interesting is that, of course, authoritarian capitalism has been sustained in China across these last 40 years, right? For 40 years, this has actually worked. This is a chart of GDP per capita growth in China from 1979 when the opening to capitalism occurred in China uh, to, what, two years ago. Uh, 41,908 renminbi per year per person. That translates to roughly $6,800 per person, right? So that's a hell of a rise, right? Um, and China's success is extraordinary. They have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, by purchasing power parity, that's $6,800 per person. So if you normalize to the costs of living in China as opposed to what things cost in the United States, purchasing power parity, they are roughly equivalent to us now, we, to the United States. Moreover, they've got a lot of stuff going right. The Shanghai Futures Index just surpassed the S&P 500 on, on uh, volume of trades conducted. They have 9,000 private funds that are, that are increasing in their sophistication and their trading strategies on their stock market. Um, the, the basic bargain that the Chinese government has successfully pulled off with their public in the last 40 years is that prosperity, that the government will help provide prosperity and the people will comply with a political system that gets to set the boundaries for discourse in the society. And so material, material improvement buys compliance. And we in the West look at China I'm guessing nobody in the room would give up their passport in order to be a Chinese citizen, right? Because you want to have a government you can throw out of power. You, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That our political, that we are people who are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. And those are not rights Chinese have in that manner. Their government 
gives them to them as their government pleases. And you probably saw they rounded up uh, most of the human rights lawyers in the country, arrested most of the human rights lawyers in the country last week. Um, and uh, corruption is, is on a scale that's hair-raising. Uh, and yet, we should not kid ourselves, the Chinese government is by and large popular with its people. It is by and large, the, by and large, the Chinese public has accepted this bargain. And, and we are looking at China through the liberal lenses of our freedoms and not looking carefully enough at the fact that, that you know, in a country of a billion people, a couple of hundred human rights lawyers aren't that big a deal to most of the country. Corruption is a big deal to people. And, but the crackdown on corruption that this Chinese government has brought about is wildly popular. Even though people think it's a political vendetta by the leadership, concurrent with that, people believe everybody is corrupt in the country. So, you know, yeah, it's a political vendetta, but there's no doubt these people are guilty, is the basic public attitude. And lastly, the assertive foreign policy that is driven by a sort of resentful nationalism in China, the kind of thing we're going to talk about in a little bit, that is also wildly popular among the Chinese public. So we may not have a problem of an assertive militaristic Chinese government trying to upend the system. We may have a problem of a Chinese, a Chinese people willing to do that. Um, <clears throat> and that is what um, makes this such an interesting problem right now. Because the Chinese economy is beginning to stall as uh, both Victor and Eddie mentioned this morning. And uh, so will Chinese continue to more or less accept this political bargain if the prosperity piece of it stalls out? That is, if the wealth that you have now becomes the baseline, instead of everybody thinking there are opportunities to improve their economic circumstances. And... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so China's economy, as Eddie could tell you much better than I, uh, the Chinese economy is just at the point at which economists start to worry about the middle income trap, right? So they have a manufacturing-based economy that has been fueled by immigration from the rural countryside into the cities. And it looks like they've just about exhausted the upward potential of that. So if they are going to continue to succeed at growth rates that the public thinks is normal, so 9 10% a year, uh, they have actually got to master the transition to services. They've got to drive internal consumption. Um, they have to be able to, uh, to get from a partially liberalized economy to something that generates its own intellectual capital rather than gets it elsewhere. Um, and, and the Chinese government understands that, right? They're, not only are they not stupid, they're deeply self-interested. And they understand that the perpetuation of the political order that elites are benefiting from is a function of this continued prosperity. So it's a partially liberalized economy that they are trying to liberalize, 
without permitting political liberalization. This is what we political scientists call a fantastic test of a theory we never get to test in real life, right? And so, so we're in the middle of it. Can they actually move to a floating currency without provoking a political disruption that brings the government down? Can state-owned firms, which have been the economic engine of this industry, can they be privatized or at least privatized or at least uh, made to work on more realistic economic principles? Uh, and, and the stock market, which this is a graph of, is, as you've probably seen in the newspapers, uh, people are talking about the enormous drop in the value of the Chinese stock market and trying to figure out whether this is a dangerous portend of things to come, whether it's the right metaphor for thinking and talking about what's happening in the Chinese economy. Um, I think it's not, and, and I'll tell you why. So, so first you can see it's an enormous drop, right? Since the start of the summer, the Chinese stock market has lost 30% of its value. 30%. It lost 6% of its value yesterday alone. Um, and uh, the Chinese central bank just yesterday pumped $19 billion into the system in order to, to try and calm down skittish investors. They have put roughly, Boston Consulting Group has, has judged they put roughly a trillion dollars into the system since the start of the summer to try and uh, keep skittish exceptions. Moreover, 58% of the stocks trading on the Chinese market have been suspended yesterday because they hit their 10% margin at which uh, the, the, the automatic stops kick in, right? So, so this is a big deal. $3.5 trillion in value has been erased since the start of the summer. That's the equivalent of the entirety of China's foreign currency holdings. So all that business about all the dollars the Chinese hold and why we need to be worried about it, they have erased more than that in the last two and a half months uh, on their stock market. Moreover, the system itself is quite rickety. Margin financing accounts for 12% of the value on the stock market, which Goldman Sachs assesses to be easily the highest in history um, of global equity markets. So, so the, the system is actually uh, poised for wild uh, uh, volatility. Uh, the Chinese government has moved against this correction in the market by banning short selling, uh, by making illegal, by calling out the, what they call vicious criminality of stock traders. And what counts as vicious criminality is if you have made more than five trades in a day, uh, you come on the government's radar screen for, as a danger to the market. They're bullying pension funds to, uh, to prevent them from selling. And the central bank is, as I previously mentioned, pumping money like mad into it. That said, this is not a systemic problem for China, which sounds crazy, right? Because this is a big effect. But here's why it's not systemic. As you can see from that chart, their stock market is still trading 75% above its value at the start of this calendar year. 
Um, only 5% of capital flowing through the Chinese economy is captured in their market. So it's much lower. Uh, the market represents much less of the capital that is, that is driving the economy. And it's not banks who are the major traders, it's brokerage firms. So it doesn't represent a challenge to the banking system in the way that it would um, in the West. And because of the very low interest rates in China, um, there is a frothiness to the market because people are looking for value on return and they can't get it by other means. So, so again, lots of volatility. This, if you are a Chinese leader, what will keep you up at night is that this problem isn't even your biggest problem, right? Uh, they, in this uniquely political economy, um, they have much bigger problems with the, the frailty of the banking system, uh, with the indebtedness of local governments, which are probably unsustainable, with the fact that nobody trusts government data because it's a political, it's, it is a politicized system. Like Eddie Lazier could never get away with producing the kind of numbers the Chinese produce. Right? They say they are, have 7% growth this year. I don't know anybody who believes that. Um, most of the close China watchers believe actually that it's under 5% and maybe even around 3%. Now, you may recall that when uh, President Bush was in office, he described, I think he described it in his memoir as well, described that the you know, he had a summit with the Chinese leader, and the president said, you know, I, I lie awake at night fearful there will be another terrorist attack on the United States. And the, the Chinese leader uh, responded, I lay awake at night because I have to produce 25 million jobs a year. <laughs> so he would like to have our problems rather than his problems. And, but there's no way to get to our problems without, without limbering up state-owned enterprises, without floating their currency, without starting, beginning to move the economy towards services and the kinds of societies that are good at, good at services, right, tend to be the Western societies, which is the Fukuyama and Mead argument. Um, so... Uh, the, it looks like, too, that the, even if the Chinese wished they could sustain manufacturing as the model by which uh, their economy is driven, they're being priced out of manufacturing. Not only are they being priced out by being undercut with labor costs in Vietnam and other um, places, but the, this disruptive innovation of capital-intensive manufacturing, right? The robotics revolution that begins to blend a couple of humans and a whole bunch of machines. Um, it now, again, a Boston consulting study looked at the cost of manufacturing in the United States. So their baseline is $1 equals the U.S. cost of manufacturing. Uh, it costs 96 cents by comparison to manufacture something in China. Once you begin to factor in transportation costs, once you begin to factor in things that... So 
the, the bottom line is China can't even sustain the manufacturing economy because Western companies are falling out of love with China. They're tired of the intellectual property theft. They are tired of the fact that there is not the rule of law in any predictable way in China. And, and so the Chinese have serious economic challenges if they think they're going to be able to even sustain. But their political challenges are even bigger than their economic challenges. Uh, and the stock market crash uh, is actually affecting their political challenges because the Chinese government not only is the kind of basic bargain that you, um, uh, that you, um, prosperity buys you political compliance, but they have been cheerleaders to get people to make investments. And so when the stock market began to tank, it goes to the political legitimacy of the regime. They encouraged investors in. As though stock markets only ever went up, they didn't also go down. Um, and the reputational cost, not only of them losing people money, but the fact that they look to be bungling their way through this. They don't look like they know what they're doing. Right? So when Eddie Lazier looks at the choices the Chinese have made in the last two months, um, right, that, that doesn't redound to the credit of the government. And they have to be a lot more worried about that than even somebody who's not running for office again. So the long-term volatility of markets and politics that countries in the West take for granted, the Chinese are struggling to try and prevent, and not very successfully. What they want to be, what this Chinese leadership wants to be, and what I think the Chinese people actually would support their government being, um, the, Chinese, the, the leader of China has started talking about the Chinese dream, right? Like he's trying to build a parallel to the American dream. Right? Middle class, your kids live better than you do. It's a free society. The Chinese dream is basically Singapore, right? Uh, a wealthy society in which the rules are well understood and obeyed um, and enormous prosperity. The Chinese nightmare <laughs> excuse me, is uh, people starting to be incredibly demanding of their government and the economy not producing the results that they need. Uh, and sadly, it looks to me like that's where they begin to be. 4,000 Chinese a day. Some of you may have seen this article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago. Uh, there is a study done by a California firm that's getting a lot of play in China and out. 4,000 Chinese people a day die prematurely because of the air pollution in China. Um, uh, the Tianjin explosion that happened a few days ago, many of you probably saw the picture in the newspaper of this enormous crater because somebody was illegally storing all sorts of hazardous chemicals. So, so not only did it happen, uh, but the government had very slow, very tentative, the most, the quickest, most efficient uh, measure the government took in order to do that was to shut down media reporting on it. Uh, which, again, in a crisis, goes, 
it, it makes people distrust it. They've been slow and repressive. And there is, as there so often is in repressive societies, that the antibodies of public outrage begin to kick in. There has been a, a social media campaign going on in China by Chinese, and all it says is, who will take responsibility? And there's cat and mouse going on where every time this pops up someplace, the Chinese government has to go in and shut it down. Um, and so instead of getting sound information out that's going to calm people down, they're, they are worried about the management of the narrative, not about solving the problem. So not only do they have political problems, oops, what am I doing wrong? There we go. They have foreign policy problems because the, the international order the Chinese want actually isn't an international order that China's neighbors want. And the main secret of American dominance in the international order is that mostly we have chosen to run the order in a way other people are more or less happy with. So you get less resistance to it because people find a way to benefit it as well. The Chinese have not mastered that. I love this cartoon, right, because what the Chinese government is saying is that, they, that peaceful development is what they're after. And this is what they look like to their neighbors. <laughs> a 10% a year increase in defense spending, the, um, the building of these islands, the oil rig in Vietnamese waters, the uh, unilateral announcement of an air defense zone. Uh, so, so the changes the Chinese want and are beginning to try and make are resisted. In fact, the Chinese, you know, I do a lot of work, as some of you know, on alliance management. And, and so I deal with complaining allies all the time when I'm in government. And what, what's so astonishing to me about this assertive Chinese foreign policy is that they're actually doing our work for us. They have reinforced America's alliances in Asia, even at a time in which we're making a lot of dumb moves. Everybody wants the Philippines, which threw the United States out in what, during the Reagan administration, right? The, the Filipinos are offering us bases to come back to because they want American military presence in the region. Singapore is making the same set of choices. American Marines are now going through uh, Australia with, on a routine basis. So the, what the Chinese, how the Chinese characterize the international order that they want is, is state sovereignty, right? So none, none of this Western meddling in, what, in the internal business of state. They're giving aid with no strings. So not only do you not have to be a democracy and respect human rights and all of the things that we in the West demand, but, but they don't care. As long as an investment is making money, they will invest in it. And even if it's not making money, if it builds a kind of political relationship that will get them access to raw materials or markets, they are willing to make it. Uh, and the last element of it is that they get that we succeed in large part on soft power, 
right, on the attractiveness of our values and our ideals and our engagement with the world. And so they're trying to, many of you have seen these articles about Confucius centers, right, these Chinese cultural centers that they're setting up at universities, which in the United Kingdom and the United States, we're now throwing off university campuses because what they look like is an effort to intimidate free scholarship uh, about China. Um, and, and their foreign policy priorities are Hong Kong and Taiwan. I did this on purpose to actually prove the point about an authoritarian leadership which is imposing its rules. Once it loses credibility that it knows what it's doing, you're sunk. And that's what the Chinese are doing with the financial crisis as well. So Hong Kong and Taiwan, they, what they want is the incorporation of these, what they view as renegade provinces, back into the whole of China. But, but that's obviously not what the Taiwanese or the people of Hong Kong want. And that, in fact, the, the Taiwanese argue with some plausibility that, uh, that the only way that these two societies will ever reunite is when Hong Kong becomes when China becomes Taiwan, not when Taiwan becomes part of China. Um, so the Chinese bullying goes on to, uh, to the way that they are behaving in the South China Sea, right? So the U.S. Navy holds a big exercise in Hawaii and invites all, the, all sorts of countries from the Asia Pacific to participate. And when they did it about a month ago, the Chinese admiral there, after hearing all the countries that are their neighbors, uh, happy that the United States is there, talking about the United States as the regional balancer of power, um, and the Chinese admiral stood up and said, and yet China is a big country and you are all small countries. That's a simple fact. So they have a ways to go before they can persuade people that a strong China absent an American counterbalance is going to be a good thing in Asia. Um, and they clearly have a strategy, right? They know what they want to do. They want to intimidate the countries in the region into acquiescing to what China wants, and they want to edge the United States out. Um, but they're, they are, at least so far, largely unsuccessful in carrying out that strategy. And mostly they don't have a positive agenda in foreign policy. They're, they're quite passive, but they take action to endorse this you know, hegemony with Chinese characteristics. So they vetoed UN resolutions uh, on Syria, for involvement in Syria. Uh, for involvement in Darfur, two places that are the worst humanitarian crises around. Uh, they serve a spoiler role. And where they are trying to be positive, like the Asian Infrastructure Bank, corruption looks like it may be a significant problem for them. And uh, the other big positive initiative that they're trying is the BRIC countries, right? The, the rising powers. And of them, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and Brazil, India and China are the only two that are still rising. Uh, and so they're having to bankroll those who are unsuccessful. 
but the biggest risk that China faces, and this is where the stock market crisis might actually be interesting, uh, is panicky leadership, looking like they don't know what they're doing and they're just ricocheting around, right? So when the pictures go down, the Chinese government can't keep talking. And that's the problem that they are facing um, because they are inherently intolerant of instability, right? As chasing these, these Twitter memes about who is responsible for what's happening after the crash demonstrate. But that kind of churn, that messy, squalid um, reactiveness is actually what free societies are good at, right? The resilience that comes from unexpected things happening and figuring out how to make them advantageous to you. That's why the West has been successful. So my conclusion is that, and the reason they are successful that way, is actually less because of our governments and more because of our civil society. And it is civil society in China that the Chinese government is afraid of. And that's why I am betting my money on Frank Fukuyama and on Walter Russell Mead and on the people who believe that in the long run, so this is one of the islands that they've been constructing, and the Chinese very proudly announced that they are no longer building, right? Because at this Navy meeting that the United States had in the Pacific, uh, um, they got lambasted by everybody present, right? It, it was a perfect situation from the American perspective. We didn't have to say a thing. Everybody else in the region started complaining about the Chinese trying to challenge the rights of other countries unilaterally. And so the Chinese uh, government came out and said that they're not actually building anymore. But the reason they're not building anymore is because they're done. Right? <laughs> they have completed construction. Uh, so uh, let me just close on a, on a slightly worrisome note, which is, okay, I'm gonna try this again and probably. So these are the contested areas of the South China Sea in which they are building islands. What you need to know from this picture is look at how much they overlap. There's no clean solution to this, and the Chinese are trying to pretend there is one. And let me just end on the note that I said I was betting my money that authoritarianism can't be sustained because sooner or later, people start demanding clean air, safe baby milk, schools that don't collapse in earthquakes. Um, and, and the United States is bad at a whole bunch of things, uh, but free societies give you responsiveness to what people are worried about. And I, the, the journalist James Fallows, who was posted in China, for the Atlantic and is one of the best China followers. Uh, his conclusion is that whatever the problems of the United States, China's problems are vastly more. Their problems are harder to solve. They're more urgent and more deeply chronic. And the Chinese have, government has much less margin for error. So I personally don't think the Chinese are gonna succeed in leaping across the middle income trap and being able to sustain a repressive society that somehow manages to make Apple irrelevant. But um, that doesn't mean that China won't be a serious problem for us. And even if they do manage to become a free society, the, because we don't 
have a Chinese government problem. We have a China problem. It could result in a China that is an illiberal democracy, that is free enough to be inventive in its economy, but really ugly nationalists that we have to push back into the box every time they try to get out of it. Um, so, so lots to be worried about, about China going forward, even if they do not succeed at that. And that's where I'll stop. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.